my hair standing up. Wow, your hair can stand up now. Yeah, it does. It does that whenever I cut it short because it's gotten so used to like the weight of the long hair keeping it down. <laughs> it looks so much better. I like it. It looks good. I, uh, it looks worse with the hat on. Is the problem? It does. Yeah, the, I think the long hair worked well with the hat, but oh, that might have. Maybe that was like the big thing about the uh, not so much the haircut in the pictures I saw, but the fact that you weren't wearing your hat. That certainly does contribute to me looking quite different. Although you don't usually see me with the hat anymore, because you always see me here. That's true. Hmm. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. How are you? Did you see Star Wars? Um, I did see Star Wars. I saw it yesterday with my son, who's six. It was the first time seeing a Star Wars movie in the theater. Uh, so that was exciting. I thought it was good. I enjoyed it. It wasn't like great, but I was never bored and I never thought, uh, I mean, a couple times I thought this is kind of silly, but yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but maybe we can spoil it at the end like we did with the last one. Yeah, I agree. I thought, is, is mentioning CG Tarkin a spoiler even? Yes. No. Okay. It's not, a, no. it's not, I don't think that's it's a spoiler. It's the Death Star and Tarkin's involved. Like yeah. if you, anybody who's seen episode four, that's not a spoiler. Yeah. We talked about that at, at lunch and I did not know that he was uh, CG. And if oh, I thought really? about it, if I thought about it for half a second, I would have known because he looks exactly the same as he looked in A New Hope. See, uh, I couldn't tell in the, in the, in the scenes where he was like completely still or mostly still. It was whatever he moved that it got really uncanny valley for me. Did you know going, like when you saw no, him. No, I had you, no idea. And when you saw him, did you think think that must be cg because he looks exactly the same no i was just like this guy looks really really off right so i enjoyed it people should go see it it's good yeah it was pretty good it was definitely a movie worth the ticket price so what have you been up to just getting caught up been back from vacation for like two days you're on vacation i forgot yeah i was on a long vacation i am currently dealing with some jquery's mess <laughs> I thought jQuery was like dead now. No, no, no. jQuery's still around, man. Everybody still uses jQuery. So the project I'm on currently is like mostly server rendered stuff. And then there was some jQuery stuff. And like I refactored a bunch out, a bunch of like jQuery soup type stuff out into jQuery plugins, which was nice. It's like, all right, cool. Now we're throwing, we're, we're triggering events and it's cool. Things are, things are nice, mostly decoupled. But man, we have like most of the JavaScript we have relates to custom components which the way I just said that word. So we have custom inputs, basically. Okay. And every every project I'm on, having a custom input, especially one that you don't just use a, like, you can't just use, like, a pretty popular library like Select2 or something like that for, they just don't behave right. <laughs> like, they just don't meet your expectations. They don't, like, handle accessibility the way that the native ones handle it. They don't handle, like, keyboard... Not, this is also accessibility, but, like, keyboard events the same way that native widgets handle them. And they're never like really that. going to, right? JavaScript doesn't necessarily give you the tools needed to do all of that properly. Right, but you can get close, and, like, it's just a matter of, yeah. like, how much time do I want to invest in reinventing this input? <laughs> can we just right. use... And actually, like, the particular input I'm thinking of right now is, like, we have a drop-down select box which sounds very like what you would want select two for, except the things that people, it's a multi-select, right? So like in select, mm -hmm. select two, you can press the drop down, you can multi-select things and it has like, it throws tags into the input field mm -hmm. that you can close. But like the things you're selecting are often quite long and we don't really have room in the design to show all of those things. 
So what we'd rather do, like what we wanted to do is say like three items selected, basically. Four items selected, five items selected, and select two doesn't really give us the, as far as we can tell, doesn't give us the way to, to do that. And so what they what they decided on was like, we just want a drop down that's a bunch of select boxes. So we've kind of built this custom thing that works, except for now it's like, okay, well, when you click anywhere else other than inside of a checkbox, we want to close any open checkboxes. It's like, all right, well, that seems easy, except trying now I'm trying to like figure out what the right, where do I bind this jQuery event? <laughs> and like, I mean, you got to do that on document, right? Sure. Uh, but then you want to say document, but then not if you're inside this dropdown, because I don't want to close the dropdown that right. you're currently you can, interact. Right. You, you can, can do that. In you can do these things in the, in the event callback. Right. And then we had like, there's also this other thing that we layered on top, which was like, we want to auto submit. The, this is basically just a, a, a giant search form. And anytime you change one of the inputs, we want to auto submit the form. Okay, sure. Because the, this form is snappy enough and it's, it's not going to be Ajax or anything. It's not turbo linked yet. But if we did, it'd probably get even snappier. So anytime you sub, you change an input, we want to submit the search for you. And uh, the caveat was if you have an open checkbox select, like you have that open display, we don't want to just close it and submit like submit the form, which causes it to close again. So we, while it's open, we want to just like queue up all those changes. And then when you close it, if anything has changed from its original state, trigger the thing. So there's some state tracking that has to get involved in this jQuery code now. It says like, okay, when you plug inify this thing, what's its initial state? And then we intercept change events on it <laughs> so that they don't bubble up. And then once you close that thing, we then check to see if anything has changed from its initial state and then manually trigger a change that doesn't so get So I'm going to incur the wrath of the internet here. Okay. But just this sounds like the sort of thing Angular was really, really good at. You know, I was thinking a lot about that as I was doing this. I was like, oh, I remember I did that Angular project and I really didn't like it. But man, it could be just a small slice. It's Angular was the the framework, and I don't know if it still is in Angular two or whatever. But Angular one, at the very least, because I haven't used Angular two, so Angular. I think one, nowadays everyone uses React, but right, Angular one at the very least was it was the framework that you could use if you only wanted a little bit of a framework. Right, right. This one section of your page you wanted to do something with, um, whereas Ember wanted to take over your page. Well, and the thing I always really liked about it for stuff like this was that it was really good at handling the sort of stateful UI component, but then it also made it really, really easy to test that component mm. in isolation. Yep. Yep. That's probably not going to happen, but... <laughs> no, I mean, it never happens with jQuery stuff. Well, and it, I'm probably not going to rewrite it in Angular either. No, nor, nor was I suggesting that, but it's just, that as you're describing this, I'm like, this sounds a lot like the sort of weird had all of the little caveats that made it need to care about the entire rest of the page that you never quite expect that uh, Marshall Codex had all over the place with the various mouse event handlers that, that it needed in the rendering stuff. Right. I, I just remember Angular was a really, really good fit for that project. Like, my major point is that custom inputs are terrible, and you should avoid them at all costs. <laughs> I mean, isn't, uh, isn't uh, Web Components supposed to save us? I guess maybe I don't know. Is it going to handle like I mean I still if it's web components that's still just a component I have to build and I have to handle all of the like accessibility of that and the you know I don't right know, but then it, whole... but then but then it's just a component that you can use anywhere with HTML imports. Okay, sure. I don't know. Wake <laughs> me when that actually happens. Right. I'm mostly being sarcastic because I've lost all faith that those two things are ever going to actually <laughs> exist. 
yeah. So custom inputs. I I think you like sometimes you need them because you're like it's a very particular thing to the. It's like kind of part of your project's secret sauce or whatever. I don't know if it's secret, but it's kind of like it's part of what you're doing, right? Another yeah. time, but I feel like most of the times that I'm doing custom inputs, it's just like these look prettier. Right. I mean, ideally, you, you can just do whatever you need to do with CSS. Right. Yes. But like, and we're on, getting better tools for that. Right. And I remember, like, on the Angular project I did, we just had like custom looking checkboxes. And I can't remember what the specific problems were. And I was like, man, this seemed like such low hanging fruit, right? So safe to do. We're just going to do custom checkboxes. How complicated are checkboxes? And right. it turns out more complicated than you think. And a native checkbox. <laughs> It takes care of all of that for you. Congratulations. Now you're re-implementing all that. And I don't I, I wish I remembered exactly what it was that made me say that repeatedly. Because there's probably plenty of people who are listening and been like, I've implemented checkboxes and they're totally fine. But I bet if you looked at exactly everything a native checkbox does, you're not quite there. Yeah. I remember on uh, Marshall Codex, because there were a few things that could have been inputs that were custom built stuff specifically just to make them look nicer. Um, like the play pause button is a an anchor tag, which I guess actually is still fine, but an anchor tag with fancy JavaScript attached to it. But like uh, switching between schools is a drop down that's you know a custom div with our own custom built drop down, and then the progress bar could have been a slider, but that's a uh, two divs. But I do remember I pushed very very hard because we needed to have another slider for controlling the speed of playback. I just remember pushing very hard for like it's. Fine. If this doesn't look like the fanciest thing in the world, we can style it a little bit with what it, with the CSS that we're given. But like, can we just use a native slider for this? <laughs> and so that that one piece is is a native input, and I was very proud of that. Good job. <laughs> everything so far on this page is mostly. I mean, there's a text box, so that's not. But everything's basically some form of select to or this custom checkbox select drop down thing. So there's a lot of custom stuff on the page. I did have one other thing as maintainer of Active Record I wanted to bug you about that came, okay. that came up on my project while you were gone, and I want and I was like I should message Sean, and I was like no no, he's on vacation, I don't want to. I I actually turned off all notifications, so yeah, but I didn't even want to bug you like when you checked it, you know like oh I okay knew, fair enough. So as I mentioned, it's basically a like multifaceted search kind of thing that we're building. Yep, um, that has a bunch of filters. And the way we handle that is we have a bunch of query objects. We, we say, like, given the type of search you're doing, here's the query chain that we should execute. And that just executes a bunch of query objects. And it builds up a relation, and then eventually that relation gets sorted, and we're all set. And I had to do some refactoring where, because of the way the things were built up, we had to use distinct in a bunch of places, and that gets slow. Yeah. And also causes, like, when you're doing this, like, query object type approach, it causes downstream query objects to have to know that upstream query objects might have used distinct. Because things like, once you use distinct, you can no longer sort by items that you did not select. Sure. Yes. And I always kind of view, and this, this is a, it might be an interesting discussion, but as a tangent, I always kind of view the use of distinct as, like, a smell to like my data is somehow modeled incorrectly or there's a better way to write this query. Yeah. So I looked at all these and I was like, oh, actually these queries will be more performant if I just use a subquery here where I say where exists and then subquery. Yeah. So I was like, all right, cool. This will be no problem. And I, I started out making it way more complicated than I wanted to by doing a view. And I was like, oh, wait, no, this is actually pretty simple. It's just one where exists subquery. 
And so I was like, I don't know if Active Record's going to do this. So I just did like, I was like, let's see. And I did where exists and then passed it another relation. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this works. And then I started like doing what I needed to do to like parameterize some of that and found that bind parameters don't appear to work properly when you do that type of query. The first thing, I mean, no, that totally sounds like a bug that you'd get from this. Because the first thing that is, how are you actually passing this? I think you were probably like accidentally relying on the fact, I'm pretty sure exists is not a method on relation. Yeah, okay, so basically, I'm assuming you did relation.exists and pass that directly to where. First yes, so I do like account dot where and then in parentheses my subquery dot exists. Yep. So this is a thing I get a bug report on this semi frequently. <laughs> and what you've run into is a really dumb thing that we do that honestly I say this is a really dumb thing and we should stop doing it. And actually it's not public API, so I can probably just stop doing it. I'm gonna after we stop recording, I'm gonna go see if I can just stop doing this. We delegate uh, in method missing on relation to uh, ARL. So you are calling the exists method from ARL select manager. Ah, uh, okay. So this is undocumented and unsupported. And you're also relying on the undocumented, unsupported behavior of passing an ARL AST to where. <laughs> okay. At which point you're basically responsible for managing bind parameters yourself. Okay. Yeah, I mean, what, what does work is where you use like the, I mean, it's not bind parameters where you do like the question mark and then the comma and then you input your, you, you put your stuff in there. And sure, that, and, that, and that's not going to use bind parameters. That's going to that's gonna quote it in the... Right, in so it's not going to be as performant, but I'm still going to get quoted. At least the input will be quoted, so I won't get... Yeah, no, uh, you're not. Sequ- you're not I won't get SQL, SQL injection. injection. No, yeah. Uh, no, and it's definitely like... I know I never talk about diesel on this podcast, <laughs> but... No, like what you're describing is what I think the fundamental API of where should be. You just pass in another AST? No, it's not even passing an AST, right? But you're passing the object that represents how you want to filter the query. Yep. I don't like I, I don't like relation as the unit of composition. And so I don't like query objects, right? I, I don't like that problem that you just described where you know you have query objects that have to care about things upstream because because distinct might or group by might have affected uh, what you can or cannot select or order by. Right. Ultimately, you almost you know ninety percent of scopes are concerned with where. Yes. The things that actually need to operate on the level of the entire query are usually much more localized or are something that's much more easily generalizable, such as pagination. But usually, things that care about group by select. Uh, order maybe is a little bit more generalized. But usually things I care about group by or select are very, very limited to the specific place they're being used or are, are a thing that doesn't need to compose with other things that care about select or group by. Those just aren't those, those aren't things that compose. And so I, I, I do very much want it to be, right? Okay, yeah, you want to pass exists this subquery to where. You just pass that to where. But the part of the part of the reason why that meshes so poorly with the rest of Active Record right now is because relation is our unit of composition. And we didn't have it. Our API isn't built around constructing things that you then pass to where. Right. It's built around you call where, and then you call where, and then you call where, and it's always with a hash. Right. So that's the thing I'd eventually like to change with the replacement for relation. So what I'm hearing in that, so so you would like to possibly in the very next release if you can, or at some future date if it's deemed too risky to do, remove the behavior where when I call exists on a relation, which I think it's calling some active record exists because... I know this is an active record relation, then therefore exists must be an active record relation method. Right. It's actually not. It's calling an no, A. It's, re- it's calling an ARL method. 
And you're saying you want to deprecate that de- that delegation? Oh, I or, don't need to deprecate it. It's not public API. You just want to remove that. I Probably, think, yeah. I think you'll be surprised at the number of people who are calling exists on a relation. Not surprised at all. <laughs> I think you. I, will, get bu- I get bug reports about this. Right. I think, but I think you will also be surprised by the number of people who report problems when you remove exists. No. Yeah. And ultimately, right. I've said before, I want to make ARL public API mainly just because I'm I'm basically done with relation and I'm convinced that we need to move it to its own gem and extract it from Rails and come up with something better. But this is sort of an issue with how ARL handles what it, I I have a fundamental disagreement with ARL on what an AST should be. Cuz I think that the value of a bind parameter is part of that node. Okay. Yep. Seems reasonable. And that's how that's how diesel's AST is structured. Now it's easy for me to say that. The issue with doing it that way is that you either have to have, um, I mean, this is true in any language, but it's its a bigger cost in Ruby than it would be in other languages. Um, if you're going to have the bind parameters live on the node itself, then you either have to have the uh, AST visitor know way too much about the, inter- like your AST visitor na- now needs to do multiple things. It's no longer just visiting to construct the SQL query, also needs to grab and and potentially serialize, and that in this case would involve typecasting right. uh, the values. And so now your visitor knows way too much. You either need to do it like that, or you need to do multiple AST passes. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy for you to say like, oh, it should just be structured how it's structured in Diesel. But in Diesel, I can do however many AST passes I want to for free because they're going to get they're going to get optimized away by the compiler. Right. That's not going to be the case in Ruby. Right. So in Ruby, you'd have in that approach, you would have something walk over the AST to say, like, serialize these bind parameters to their query format or whatever. Right. And it would just it would just be in the visit bind param method. It would just know about all of these additional details. Right. Which I'm actually kind of okay with. Like what one example I I added what would have otherwise uh, I added in Rails five. Uh, a thing to active record, which in diesel is a full separate AST pass, which is determine if this query is safe to cache as a prepared statement. Right. Which it basically means is this uh, an AST that can result if we if we put this in a cache prepared statement, would would this same AST result in an unbounded number of potential queries? And so the answer is yes, unless it contains uh, an in node, a SQL literal node, or um, a third one that I'm forgetting. Those are the two biggest ones. In's the really the, the only huge one. Right. And a SQL literal node is in there because a SQL literal node could literally represent anything. And I have no way of knowing if that's just a string literal or if that's something you constructed dynamically. And so diesel is just a, a second AST uh, pass. In, in active record, I actually monkey patch the ARL visitor to extend in a module which overrides these methods to set an instance variable. Okay. Because that's the only way to efficiently do this. Right. In fact, we had a huge performance regression in Rails 4.1 that resulted from Aaron accidentally adding an additional AST pass on Postgres because the uh, the bind param node used to, used to just be a SQL literal thing. And so when the node got constructed, we would have an index that was on the um, relation object that would just get incremented every time this got passed in, which is fine until you merge two relations or have a subselect or right. have a join. And then everything everything falls apart. So uh, the way he fixed that bug was he added an additional AST pass uh, at the end, which just walks over the entire AST, looks for any bind param nodes, and and just recreates them with the appropriate index. And that resulted in an enormous performance regression. <laughs> Whoops. 
and so the solution, of course, was just to have the bind parameter just be like, hi, I'm a bind parameter, and then in the visitor, keep track of the index and, and, and increment that appropriate accordingly. Um, but I remember that was the first place where I started to realize how much I was bumping into disagreeing with Arrow, because I also wanted to start putting type information there right. during this same refactoring. And I remember Aaron and I disagreeing on whether or not that should live on the AST. Yeah. So what I'm hearing basically is what I'm doing isn't really meant to be done, and it's a happy accident that it works. <laughs> Right. Passing a relation at all, never mind this exists thing, but passing a relation at all to where. Right. Passing a relation to where is a nonsense thing, right? We accept, uh, actually, we support two arguments to where directly. An array that contains a string and all of the values that are going into that, that are the bind params for that string, and that, or we accept a hash. Okay. We have undocumented support for <laughs> we accept an ARL AST. And I do generally, if like I accidentally break, you can no longer pass an ARL AST to this thing. I, I do consider that a bug. The exact behavior of what passing an ARL AST does is a little bit more like may or may not be a bug. But right. I do consider we take an ARL AST there to be more or less officially supported. I was surprised that it worked, but then I was like, oh, cool. It works. And then I was like, oh, it's broken in this way, which probably yeah. means it's not supposed to work. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, the fact that, the fact that ex- right, the, I think the, the root of the problem there is that you called an exists method. Right. And that was a thing. But I'm happy in my world where I just do the quoted insertion syntax, whatever you want to call that, where I put the query mark and the query question mark and then I comma and I pass the thing. And now you're telling me that uh, I may not be happy in Rails 503. <laughs> right oh no no i mean i think you're right well let me put it this way i think that asking for dot exists is a valid feature yes uh, in terms of like creating a thing that i i think that passing that to where directly should just work okay i mean you will definitely not be unhappy in 503 right it'd be it would be 51 probably won't be 51 it'd be 52 because 51 is almost out the door it sounds like Ooh, what's that ad did we talk about this already uh, what's com- what's coming in five one? <laughs> uh, hold on, I can pull up the the quote unquote headline features. It's going to be a much smaller release, which I wish we could do more of. Yeah, that sounds good. I think we talked about this, right? Because I, I was I, mentioning I think we like did. I yeah, I'm upset about this because it, I I didn't finish all the stuff that I wanted to get into it. But right. like, I'd be happy if this meant we were going to be releasing more frequently. But I don't think it will be. Yeah, we did talk about this, and I think we talked about what was going to be in it. I don't. It's some the base headline features things. are system testing, a concurrent test runner, encrypted secrets, a uh, new format for database.yaml, uh, routes.draw, hash direct, form with, webpack, and no more jQuery. We use Yarn. We have modern transpilers. That's all exciting stuff. I'm excited. Yeah. I just added Yarn to this uh, Rails 5 project that I'm on now. Uh, and it was pretty painful. I guess I actually shouldn't say we don't like it's a smaller release. I also agree. Uh, I don't actually know what three of those things are, but uh, <laughs> uh, that's fewer than what I don't know are. And uh, like, I don't really care about form with, and I wish we weren't doing that. Form uh, with? Yeah, it's a replace. So um, basically, David doesn't like that we have the mismatch, impedance mismatch between form for and uh, form tag. So they they're being unified into a new API called form with. Uh, is this like when we went from having like render partial and render template to just render or like mostly yeah. where everything uh, every like anytime you want to render anything now you call render and you would have to know what the different art like oh if you pass only three arguments and they happen to be of this type then this is the behavior you get no Whereas if you pass no, five arguments be less, you have this it's collection be less magical than that okay but you're supposed to call form with now that's going to be like the thing that you're supposed to do yeah which okay. like Whatever. I just I'm, I mostly dislike because form tag is not a thing that I, I use much and is fundamentally different than form for and I think it should continue to be fundamentally different. Yeah. 
uh, and also just use simple form. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it won't impact me because I'll just use. But then simple form is going to have to add add simple form with <laughs> simple form yeah. tag with. Anyway, but like systems testing, right? Cool. The thing that literally everybody except Basecamp does now Rails right. supports it in a different way than you're already doing it, probably. Uh, I, I I think it'll actually be pretty similar. To, if, if for people who are using Capybara with with mini yeah. test today, it'll be remarkably similar. And yeah. for people who are using RSpec, it will do literally nothing. Right. So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to life as a freelancer. I feel like m- myself, I know a lot more freelancers than I knew, you know, five or ten years ago. And the perception around freelancing itself seems to be changing. Like. I feel like you used to think like when you met somebody who was like, oh, I'm a freelancer. It was like, oh, you, you can't hold down a job. <laughs> uh, and, and now you meet a freelancer and you're like, oh, man, that sounds great. Right. Working for yourself, working with like one client at a time or maybe three clients at a time or something like that. A small number of people, you know, being more autonomous and working in new areas that you haven't been concentrating on before all sounded great. And it's challenging. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but our friends at FreshBooks believe the rewards are so worth it. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds, and if I could take just a half a second to expand on this. When I have done some side freelancing work and somebody said to me, can you send me an invoice for that? It's always been like, uh, <laughs> let me up my, let me open up Microsoft Word and uh, pull up the invoice template and send this really super professional looking thing that I'm sure they've never seen before, yeah. right? Um, and then how do, what are terms and how do I set them and how am I going to remind them? Well, with FreshBooks, you can also set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four days faster. And you can see when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to whether or not like, have, have they seen this thing yet? Do I need to remind them? Um, one of the things it can also do is, is automatically send out reminders for past due payments uh, when your terms are passed, obviously, things like that. Um, so it's got, it's got your back as a freelancer covered. And folks that I know that are freelancers need products like this in their life. I should have been using that. When I started with Shopify, I was an independent contractor for a better part of a year. I should have, I should have gotten that just for the invoicing part alone because I'm just remembering how terrible invoicing was. Right. And and it does a lot more than that, too. Like if you need to do time tracking on your projects, things like that, uh, FreshBooks can help you out there. So if you're an independent contractor or freelancer, you want to check out FreshBooks. And uh, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash bike and enter the bike shed in the how did you hear about us section. Thanks again to our sponsor, FreshBooks, for their support. What's the database YAML format changes? That sounds... Oh, uh, I Odd. remember I was reading, there was a thread about this recently. I actually don't, <laughs> I just, I just clicked on Basecamp. First comments from David. What does this entail again? <laughs> oh, so the idea is to have, um, to be able, so if you want to have like multiple databases. Oh, okay. And you want to nest them, like instead of having to do like database A underscore development, database B underscore development, right? right. We have, because we have the conventions mm-hmm. around the, the test production thing. Yep. This lets you do development colon indent a level, yep. database A configuration, database B configuration, and oh, then I production. Like that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a, a very useful thing. 
And then Webpack, we've talked about that already. And then Yarn, yeah. Modern Transpilers. I still don't know if we're going to be switching to ES6 by default in Rails 5.1, but that's still a possibility. Uh, that'll be great. Like this is this is the sort of stuff I wish this is this was more of our releases. Yeah. Like these are all great quality of life changes. Yep. And I like the fact that like they're not getting hung up on a like if this had been like if the next release was supposed to be 6.0 and all this stuff was ready to go, it's like, oh well, there needs to be marketing connotations behind this 6.0 thing. So like. We're going to need, like, these all sound big enough to, like, if from a marketing perspective to me, you could call this 6.0, and I'd be like, yeah, sure. I'm I'm in the camp that we shouldn't have a Rails 6, or if we do, its headline feature should be proper HTTP2 support and mm. a user-facing API for server push. Yeah. For me, that's like, uh, I, I mean, form objects, cool. That doesn't really need to be, like, a major release, though, and, and stuff like that. Like, there are a few APIs I'd like to see more fleshed out. I'd definitely like to see the query builder for active record. That would have to be a major release, but... uh I'd definitely like to see the query builder for active record revamped. I'd like to see type coercion and validations pushed closer to the controller level and taken out of active model. All yeah, you know, there are all these little changes I'd like to see, but mostly we should just have more releases like this and not have big headline features. Rails really doesn't need uh, uh there's not a ton that Rails is missing at this point. If there happens to be a headline feature, so be it, but no need to be like like let's let's just go and release every 6 months or every 6 weeks or every 3 months or something. I don't know. Right. But yeah, getting the features out earlier certainly would be more preferred, I think, as we've talked about several times. Yeah, cer- certainly, right. I definitely want to get them in the wild in a this is not public API, but we are we are actively encouraging people to try this feature out. Mm. I, I do want to have things live in that state more like to a certain extent. Actually, the attributes API was almost an experiment with that because a lot of people used it in, with Rails 4, too. Yeah. Despite my warnings, that's a lot, that that was like this is only eighty percent implemented. Right, and I feel like there's been other stuff like that. Like identity map was a thing for a while, where it was like we've added identity map. Mm, we right, I mean, we <laughs> removed it, out it, but it and let us know, and then it got removed eventually. Yeah, but like it's a thing. I still need to write up more proper proposals for this. <laughs> Speaking of features that people try out and then get released, I don't know if you saw. The new macros for Rust are going to be stable in four weeks. I saw that you were very excited about it. I'm so excited about it. No, <laughs> diesel being on uh, usable, purely on stable Rust is going to be huge for us. Diesel exploded while I was on vacation. I saw that. I actually saw like an uptick in like things in my timeline about diesel that weren't retweets from you. <laughs> Like no, but like our getter room, it took me it took me ages to get to get through everything when I got back. And then like, I'm actually glad somebody linked to this issue because I t- I turned off GitHub notifications while I was gone. Mm-hmm. I turned them off for web as well, so I wouldn't be tempted to go to slash notifications and check them while I was on vacation. Yeah. Uh, I probably should have left them on for not work and not Rails things that are just going to be low lower volume just because. I can easily go find all of the new issues or pull requests that were open since I since I left for vacation. But comments, I I I have no way of knowing what issues had new comments that were left. And like I have an issue; it's one of the oldest issues on the repo for adding support for the JSON data type. And a bunch of people, while I was gone, came and commented like, "We're wanting to use diesel in yeah. production, but we need this feature." And then somebody actually just went and implemented it. Nice. Well, see, maybe it was a good thing you didn't have notifications enabled. <laughs> Probably, but it's also just like I like it's getting to the point now. This guy was like, "Yeah, our company really wants to use diesel in production, but we need this, so they're letting me work on this on company time. If anybody can give me some support, I'm just like, 
I'm actually a little sad I didn't see that comment because I I would have been like, yes, I will. I, I'm so on board with helping you out however you need. L- I'll luckily, s- uh, I'll send Pascal you some diesel other, stickers. <laughs> yeah. No, luck, luckily, uh, Pascal, the other uh, the other active core team member, did a good job of keeping on top of that stuff while I was gone. It's weird because the uptick I see in activity doesn't coincide with Rocket, which I should actually probably have you. Uh, did you hear about Rocket? In some of those tweets that I saw, is that did this come out recently or something? Because I was like, yeah, oh. it was while I was on vacation. Okay, yeah, because I th- I think that might have been why I saw more because what I was seeing was like references to Rocket and Diesel together. Yeah, I saw so, like three or four of those. So Rocket, for the listeners, you should go to Rocket.rs is a web framework that somebody made for Rust that they released over the holidays. Uh, well, released they released version zero point one. That's I mean that's released, and it uses Diesel in one of its examples. And it's the first web framework that anybody's done in Rust. Like, I've tried using it. I made a shitty blog with it, and I don't hate... There's one part of the code that I hate, but that's that's Diesel's fault, not Rocket's fault. It still has a, 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 a long way to go. One of the things that I've been meaning to write a longer issue on is, like, I want to kind of find out from the author where he's feeling this framework should live in terms of, like, CSRF protection's a thing that's really, really important for web frameworks to handle, and this framework is unopinionated about templating and form builders, which makes providing CSRF protection quite difficult, but like stuff like that. Uh, I want to know where Rocket's going to stand on it because that'll that'll influence whether I'm going to use it or not. But uh, it was pretty cool. And so I think to to a certain extent, the uptick is from Rocket. But then also mo- a lot of the activity increase in activity that, that I saw was several weeks before Rocket was announced. Huh, so nice. I don't know if maybe it was just people trying it over the holidays. Yeah, maybe. You know, there's a bunch of been a bunch of blog posts about marketing Rust, so maybe uh, just the blog post about marketing Rust turned into good marketing for Rust, and then turned into mar- good marketing for Diesel. Who knows? I, I know, I know, you don't go to the Rust subreddit, but did you see any of the tweets with the screenshots of what happened to the Rust subreddit the last couple of days? No. So this all, I think, was vaguely. I mean, it wasn't just a response to this, but I think the thing that triggered the original blog post was uh, some comments on a Hacker News article which I don't remember what it was, but people were talking about like how Russ is just talking way too much about, about safety. And a lot of people have said in the past, like, I wish Russ didn't put memory safety so forward in its language design, which I don't think it does, but I, I think a lot of people have that impression. Anyway, so Steve, in response to some of these Hacker News comments and just the general sentiment over, that's happened over time, wrote a blog article that was Rust is more than just safety. And then Graydon, the original author of Rust, who's not on the core team anymore, but is still somewhat active in the community, wrote a response blog post called Rust is Mostly Safety. (laughs) (laughs) And then Dave Herman, the director of Mozilla Research, wrote a blog article called Safety is Rust's Fire Flower, uh, which is referencing a popular image that was tweeted by a person whose name I'm, I'm forgetting on, but her image was like, a lot of people think this is what your company makes pointing to a picture of a fire flower, but, th- but that's not it. This is what your company makes, then it's pointing to an image of, of Mario after he's grabbed the fire fl- flower power up, and right. the, the idea being you shouldn't market your product, you market what your product allows your user to do. And right. so then Steve wrote another blog post called Fire Mario's Not Fire Flowers, and then everybody started writing Rust is dot 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 blog posts. And so there's some screenshots <laughs> of the Rust subreddit from right before this, this, this thing I'm about to mention went down. That's just literally a dozen blog posts. Rust is its community. Rust is, I don't remember. Yeah. And then uh, Kibwin, who's one of the uh, admins, and I think he's on some of the Rust. I don't think he's on the core team, but he's on some of the Rust sub teams. And he's one of the moderators of the Rust subreddit. Put a pinned moderator post at the top of the subreddit saying, Rust is literally Haskell. 
<laughs> and then took the CSS from the Haskell subreddit, but changed the title to Rustical and changed the CSS of the Rust subreddit and said, I'm, I need to blow off some steam because I've been driven by insane by all of these Rust is posts. I'm lifting the, <laughs> the ban on memes until the end of the year. Have at it. <laughs> and then every day we post a new thing, continuing his uh, descent into insanity and change the CSS to something else. So the next day it was uh, our woe dude saying Rust is one hell of a drug. And then the third day was Rust is a uh, charming man in a forest picking mushrooms or something like that. I have no clue what subreddit it, the CSS was from. <laughs> Foraging for mushrooms? I don't know. <laughs> something like that. I don't know. It was, it was pretty funny to watch, though. And at first, I was very confused because when, when somebody was like, go look at the Rust subreddit, I opened up the Reddit app on my phone, <laughs> which right, has, no CSS, yeah. you know, has no CSS on. I'm just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know. I, I enjoyed, I think I read Steve's post. I read a post from Ashley. Oh, yeah. Ashley had one as well. And I read the Fireflower, the original Fireflower one. Ashley's one was kind of a riff on the Fireflower thing. Yeah. And thought they were making good points, everybody. I thought that I, I enjoyed reading all that stuff. So, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was maddening to have a million people post blog posts about what they think Rust is. But it was interesting to an outsider to read the ones that were the most popular. <laughs> <I'll> sure. <say> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm glad I'm glad I was on vacation while this went down because I definitely would have written one, and I we didn't need more of them. Yeah, I, th- I, I again, I my opinion is Rust will live at a higher level than people have it pegged. Yeah, and that's kind of what I've taken away from all of the conversations that I've had with you about Rust is like my original interpretation of it was based on either the marketing or the perception or whatever that I had, uh, which I believe was well founded based on what was out there. Was that like this is a systems language for people who write C or C plus right. plus, and its major feature is that it has like the sharing stuff, right? Uh, and, and, and that was my take ownership. from it too. And then as we talked more and more about it, I was like, oh well, type system's nice, and oh, well, this oh you can build lots of stuff, and it's really fast, and abstractions are very cheap or free, yeah. huh? I think systems language kind of undersells that a little bit. I I, I do agree with that. You remember you remember when Go made the announcement that they were porting the, the Go compiler to Go? No, but sure. Okay, well, the Go <laughs> compiler was originally written in C, and Go right. originally marketed itself as a systems language. Yep. Now, it's kind of ironic about this is that people will n- usually nowadays say that Go is not necessarily suitable for systems programming. Why is that? Mostly because that is a garbage collector. Okay, Well. Right complex reasons that we should that 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 we'll go on about for 20 minutes if we if we go down there okay let's not do that people do say it and it's valid to say i i think i think it's valid to say that that go can be used for system stuff but it's just not a thing that you hear people talk about anymore and i I definitely have heard people say i wouldn't use go for system stuff these days but anyway one of the one of the things that i remember just from the blog post when they're like we're gonna port the go compiler to go because the the go compiler was originally written in c and one of the things the blog post was talking about was you know go was originally meant to be a systems language, but it's turned out to be a good general purpose programming language to the point that we think that the Go compiler should be written in Go. And I'm not sure if when people call Rust a systems programming language, if they're meaning that as, I want to say like a good thing or bad thing is the wrong dichotomy, but like I'm unsure if that, if that statement is meant to mean this is a language capable of going down that low level or if they're saying this is, a, if, or if people mean when they say that this is a language that's supposed to be down at that level. Because I th- yeah. think we might do Rust a service by starting to market it as a general purpose programming language. And I think maybe the intent behind systems language was like this can be really low level. I think this problem solves itself 
if people build popular things in Rust. Sure. And they see what gets built in Rust, right? So diesel is a becoming a popular thing that immediately you see like, well, what would you need a query builder for? Oh, you need it for web apps and you need it for, you know, these things. And okay, you can build all sorts of things with this now. And like, I don't think diesel is the thing that sells it though. It's the, sure. it's the web apps that get built right. with diesel. Right. With Rust. Right. So now you have people who see all these pieces coming together where you have like, sure. you have rocket and you have diesel and now they're going to build something cool and it'll be an app or it'll be a web app or it'll be something. Right. And yeah. they'll say, like, we built this in Rust, and here's all the awesome things that it got us in this particular use case. And this awesome thing, this awesome Fire Mario that I have enabled, <laughs> you yep. too can build one of these using Rust. And here are all the awesome reasons you could do it. And I think once that happens, I, I don't know. That's part of what I think, like, Haskell is missing, right? Like, I don't have, like, Pandoc, right? That's written in Haskell, I guess. So if I wanted to do that, I could, <laughs> like... You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, there's a, a library call, or a library slash application called Corrode, which is a C to Rust automatic tri- converter pro, uh, program, mm-hmm. which is written in Haskell. <laughs> okay, well there you go. And I'm sure actually there's probably tons of stuff I don't. So marketing is going to play a part in this because I'm sure there's tons of stuff out there that is written in Haskell and people love it. And I do see blog posts about like we rewrote this part of our application in Haskell and here are all the great benefits we got from it. But there's no Basecamp. Uh, sure. The company, sure. you know, there's no, you know, formerly, um, I can't I mean, remember what they used to be called. Uh, 37 Signals. 37 Signals. There's no 37 Signals out there, you know, that's like this startup that was phenomenally successful. And Facebook's probably their most prolific user, for lack Rust? of a better word. Of Rust? Uh, no, Haskell. Oh, okay. What do they use it for? Uh, their spam filtering stuff. Oh, interesting. But they're, like Facebook isn't built in Rust, right? And Facebook is the Fire Mario. The spam I'm fairly filter. certain Facebook has some Rust somewhere. They have every other language. But when developers think of Facebook, they think PHP. Sure. And that's, I mean, that's probably mostly just because their URLs end with .php. Well, and because we've heard about them, like, moving PHP forward and right. you know, things like that. But so much of Facebook's critical infrastructure is not in PHP. Probably true. <laughs> I mean, even their core app has a ton of C++. Their chat is all Erlang. Most, mm-hmm. A lot of their back-end services, they have some Rails around there for internal stuff. They use they use Haskell for their spam filtering. A lot of their internal stuff that PHP calls out to, or yeah. that is not in any way interacting with the PHP directly, but is interacting through Redis or databases or what have you. Yeah. A lot of their other services aren't in PHP. Yeah, okay. I don't know. I, I definitely originally had the same perception of Rust as you did, and I think most people did or still do, because right, I originally got into it I just I remember vaguely having not looked that closely at Rust, vaguely finding it interesting because I felt like every li- new language was trying to solve the problem of shared mutable state. And I thought Rust sounded novel to me because every other language is trying to solve it by removing mutability and Rust was trying to solve it by removing sharing. Right. And I thought that was a really novel approach. But I only tried it when I was working on Marshall Codex and I wanted to port the renderer to Rust for shits and giggles to see how that worked out. Or no, it, was, it wasn't when I was on Marshall Codex. It was when I was on Legendary, which was using the same fundamental engine as Marshall Codex. If I didn't have this project that I was writing in C++, I never would have thought to try Rust. Right. It's not like you went from like, I have this thing, uh, it's a JavaScript thing, and uh, I'm going to try writing in Rust now. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, the JavaScript code was basically C for, for Marshall Codex. <laughs> right. At least the rendering part of it. It was literally like just calling C APIs. The only part of that that wasn't a line to line directly the same thing when I went to C 
was that the WebGL has a few APIs that accept image tags. Right. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> but also really shitty when you realize that, like, oh, actually loading a PNG and getting that into a bitmap format that the GPU knows how to read is really annoying. Yeah. Except for in Rust, and it's one-liner. <laughs> okay, i got to wrap up because i got to go. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 94. As always, rings, reviews, and iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. See ya.